So we've just finished a series um, that I jokingly entitled Short Old Testament Books You've Probably Never Heard Of. Uh, so we walked through uh, Ruth and Joel and Jonah, and we just finished Habakkuk. And um, in the fall and spring of next year, we'll be doing Revelation, so that'll be a pretty long study in the same book. Before we go there, though, we're, we're going to do some short New Testament books you may have never heard of or heard taught on. And we'll probably spend, some t- we'll spend most of our time in Titus and uh, Second Peter. I think it's going to be really, really fun. Um, uh, Habakkuk was a tough book, lots of uh, kind of difficult image, imagery and stuff. Titus is very straightforward. That will be a nice change of pace. Um, but uh, as we, before we get into Titus and before we introduce the book and talk about the first three verses today, I want you to attempt to fill in the blank um, in this sentence, okay? Uh, if, if we only did blank, we would be more effective in reaching lost people, okay? You can, you can say that for, for, for this group or for the church, the church in America in general. If we only did blank, we would be way better at reaching lost people. We'd be more effective. Think through that for a minute. Maybe, you, uh, maybe, you're, maybe you're thinking like some people think that we just need to have more fun. Right? We need to be more attractive and cool, like Leland needs to dress down a little bit, work out a little bit more, wear a tight-knit shirt, have really good songs, really good events, okay? Things are just cool, so cool, the millennials keep coming, right? Um, or maybe your, your blank's a little bit darker. Uh, maybe your blank is kind of like the, what, this, this past week, the CrossFit CEO's executive, who, who just fired a Christian, uh, he said he just needed to take a dose of shut the blank up about homosexuality. That's what he said. Maybe, maybe you think that if we would just back down of some cultural issues, we'd be more effective at reaching lost people. Um, or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe you think if we were just culture warriors, like if, if East Cooper hired like a pastor of Twitter, you know, whose only job was to, to troll the internet and debate people, maybe, maybe we'd be more effective then. <laughs> the scriptures uh, reveal that all of those methods are not uh, sufficient. Um, but Titus is a book that's going to fill the blank in for us. Uh, how does a church be winsome and effective in a godless culture? Um, that's, that's what Titus is all about. It's, it's a book that says when the gospel is applied to church life, the church shines. And a shining church that is beautiful with the fruits of the gospel of Jesus is the best missionary strategy there ever was. So uh, for a couple of minutes, I'm going to introduce this book, talk about who wrote it, who's, who's, who it's written to, uh, Crete, where it was written, and all, all that good stuff, and we'll, we'll talk about the first three or four verses. So uh, the author of this book was the Apostle Paul, and uh, you guys probably know Paul. He wrote a lot of the New Testament. Um, what's important to note about Paul is that his role in the early church was that of an apostle. So he, his job was uh, to plant new churches in places where the name of Jesus wasn't known. So his, his, and his pattern would, would he, he would go to a new city, he'd spend anywhere between a few weeks to a few months to maybe a year there, uh, preaching the gospel, planting churches, then he'd be like, all right, I gotta go to a new place now. So just, just think about it for a second. Uh, you're a, a former Roman citizen, you're coming out of a lifestyle that is grossly immoral where you worship pagan gods, and you've been a Christian for like a month, and then the main guy leaves. Okay, that was Paul. That was Paul's uh, ministry. He 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 planted churches in new places. But he, what he would do is, after he'd plant these churches, he would leave a trusted coworker uh, to structure the church. 
to care for it, to be there long term. So First uh, Timothy is also a book like this. Uh, Paul preaches in Ephesus, and he, he starts the book off by saying, this is why I, this is why I left you in Ephesus. Ephesus, stay there, right? Um, so that's Paul. And Paul writes to Titus. Titus was uh, uh, one of Paul's main co-workers. He was the first uh, preacher and apostle-type figure, pastor, who was not of a Jewish background. So he was one of the first guys converted out of a Roman Gentile background and then made one of the main ministers. He was uh, one of Paul's uh, co-workers with the Corinthians. If you were here uh, this past fall, we studied 1 Corinthians, and you may remember that they were a very crazy bunch of people. So Titus had been through some hard ministry circumstances before. He was kind of like a uh, Navy SEAL type guy. He could jump into really difficult situations and do well. And that's important because uh, um, Titus is going to minister in Crete. And if you don't know where Crete is, Crete is an island in the Mediterranean Ocean. It's kind of a, I don't really do maps and visuals during Sundays, but it's it's, it's basically in the middle of Rome and Jerusalem in the middle of the ocean. It's the southernmost uh, Greek island. And uh, Crete was famous for how terrible everyone in Crete was. So we'll just backtrack 2,000 years ago, Roman culture. Normal things in Roman culture were uh, worshiping pagan gods. Uh, Men could commit adultery on their wives. No big deal. It's fine. Uh, Orgies and drunkenness were commonplace. Uh, People were always being conquered and enslaved. Part of life. Just normal. All that terrible stuff was normal. And even in Roman culture, in this crazy culture, Crete, where Titus would be ministering, was famous for how terrible everyone is. If you look in uh, uh, Titus 1, uh, verse 12, okay, and we'll get here next week. This is a very interesting verse, but uh, uh, Paul quotes a Cretan poet, someone from Crete, and he's talking about his great nation. Here's what he says. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. So a Cretan, a native Cretan, says this about his own countrymen. Another Greek historian said that uh, Cretes were so bad that they thought that highway robbery was honorable. Okay, so imagine you're on a first date, all right, and uh, you're talking to get to know this person. You're like, hey, what do you do for a living? And then this person's like, well, uh, I arm people at, or I rob people at gunpoint. That's what I do. Yeah, I find people on the side of the road, and uh, I point my gun at them, and I say, give me all your money, or I'm going to kill you. And you're like, oh, that's cool. Do you find that fulfilling? Is that, you know, you enjoy that? And like, in, in your head, you're like, okay, this is a cool guy. He's, he's, got, he's got a good job. Let's, let's keep going. You know? that's, that's how crazy Crete culture is. Being a robber is a way of life. It's just, it's just what you do. It's just a, just a normal profession. So Titus uh, is going to minister in a culture that is famous for its immorality with a bunch of brand new baby Christians just converted out of this culture. Um, Oftentimes, people who are very new to the faith are very raw. They, uh, they still um, they may have a love for the Lord, but they have all of this baggage from their former way of life. They can be hard to manage. It can be difficult. And so Titus's, uh, Titus's ministry is going to be difficult, and we'll, we'll learn about that a little bit more uh, today. But here's the main, uh, the main theme of Titus, what we're going to study for the next four or five weeks. Um, actually, one more thing. Sorry. Back up for a second. On top of all the Cretan culture stuff, there's also false teachers in the church. If you look at verse 10. Uh, Paul introduces these guys, chapter 1, verse 10. There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. So these false teachers uh, were Jewish by background, and what they wanted to do is they wanted to make Christians uh, obey 
Old Testament ritual law. So, you're, so they, they would say things like this, hey, if you're a Christian, if you love Jesus, that's cool. But what you really need to do is observe the Sabbath, go to the feast days, and get circumcised, and don't eat, uh, don't eat pork. All right? And they would do that. They would say, do these things, and then live however you want to live. Go be a Cretan. Honor the Sabbath. Don't eat, don't eat all the stuff in the Old Testament law, and you can live however you want to. So they, they, offered, they offered Cretans kind of the best of both evil worlds. You can feel good about your walk with, with God because you're doing the rituals, but you can live however you want to. And these were dangerous people. With all that going on, the uh, main theme of Titus is that when the gospel is applied to church life, when people in the church soak in the gospel of Jesus and rest in it and arrange their lives and their families and their church around the gospel, the church shines. It's beautiful. Probably the most important verse, verses in Titus are chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. We'll read them real quick. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present evil age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Just notice in this verse that the grace of God is not just what saves us, it's what trains us. So there's, there's this idea in Titus that the gospel is not how you just, just how you become a Christian, it's how you are transformed as a Christian. It's not just the truth the church proclaims, it's the truth the church is transformed by. The gospel is this power to change your life. That's Titus. So, um, if you desire for our group um, to grow, if you desire for this group to be a beautiful picture of Christ, for people to be drawn around us, if you desire for your life to look like Jesus' life, for your life to be that beautiful life that draws people to Christ, that ministers to others, Titus is for you. And uh, so this morning, um, we're going to jump into these first four verses. We're going to learn how Paul sees his ministry and in light of the gospel and how Titus can endure. All right, so let's, uh, let's, uh, let's read the scripture and we'll pray and then dive in. Titus 1, verses 1 to 4. Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you that uh, because of Jesus that... We can enjoy and wish each other grace and peace. That this morning in this room, your kindness, uh, your goodness, and our peace with you is present through Jesus. I pray as we talk about these verses and apply them, that you would make your grace and peace manifest in our lives. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So I had a suspicion uh, that our conversation wasn't going well when I noticed what I thought was an angry twitch in the other person's uh, cheekbone. 
and uh, things seemed okay. Later that day, I really knew our conversation hadn't gone well when someone called me and told me this person was going crazy and was angry at me. And I was amazed it had gotten to this point. Uh, I, I was trying to do this, this person good. Uh, I, heard, I heard some things about them, and, and I'm a big believer that when you hear things about somebody, you don't gossip, you don't spread it, you go to them, right? That's something I try to, that's, that's a key relationship principle in the scriptures. When you hear something, you go. When something happens, you go to that person. You don't just triangulate, right? And so I was like, okay, I'm going to obey Jesus. I'm going to go to this guy. I'm not, I'm not going to assume. I'm going I'm to be humble. I'm going to ask questions. I'm not going to accuse. I'm going to just, just get into somebody's junk and try to help them walk with Jesus. And it blew up in my face. I had a month of anger, hard conversations, criticism, people leaving, never coming back, all because I just tried to help somebody deal with their junk, walking with Jesus. No good deed goes unpunished, right? That's what a... One of my coworkers said to me. Anyways, uh, I responded to this in a lot of different ways. Um, at first, I was like, well, this is the last time I ever obey Matthew 18. You know, I'm never doing this again, right? I'm never confronting anyone ever again, right? Then uh, I was like, I'm done with this person. I'm just not going to, I'm just, you know, whatever. Uh, I had trouble sleeping. I was asking lots of questions like, did I do this wrong? Like, surely if I had better people skills, this wouldn't have happened, right? Um, I was convinced all this criticism people were throwing at me was wrong, but it still stung. It made me doubt what I was doing, what I was about. And it's incredible how just one bad outcome, one bad thing happening when we try to obey Jesus can make us think that it's not worth it, right? I tried that evangelism thing. I got rejected. I'm never doing that again, right? I tried to walk with a guy who was really struggling and it blew up in my face. Just gonna, I'm just gonna do my own thing now. Just one bad thing, it can flatten us, it can wreck us. And uh, Titus was walking into a situation where he would be faced daily with the reality of criticism difficulty. Just imagine this, okay? Titus is gonna walk into a room like this and say, hey, you three guys who are leading right now, you are false teachers, get out. Okay? And you three guys over here who are nervous but godly, you're the new leaders now. All right? How's that going to go? Right? He, he walks into a room full of people who a year ago were worshiping Zeus okay? and, and going to the, the, the weekly orgy. Right? And now he's going to call them to have godly family lives, to have self-control, to live in a godly way. There's going to be a lot of messy conversations. And Paul, uh, through the rest of this letter, it's going to be very direct with Titus about what he should do. This entire letter, past verse 4, is imperative. Do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. But in these first four verses, uh, Paul is trying to give Titus three truths that are going to enable him to endure almost anything. Paul's going to lay out how he sees himself, how he sees his purpose, and how he sees his hope. And those three things are going to enable Titus uh, to endure to do ministry well, to love people through all their mess. And so if you desire to learn how you can love people in their mess, how you can be a part of the church becoming beautiful, this is for you. So first, uh, Paul says, Titus, do not forget who you are. He identifies himself and Titus, and by extension us, as sent out servants and sons of God. Look at verse 1. Paul, 
a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. So this, this word servant, you might notice a little, uh, a little tiny one uh, next to the end of that word servant. Uh, it's the Greek word doulos. It means slave or bond servant. The reason it's translated servant here is because slave is a very offensive term, particularly in our, our culture with the background of American slavery and how terrible that was. But here, here's the idea that Paul's communicating, okay? At one point in my life, I was a slave to sin. I lived under the domination of evil, right? Jesus purchased me with his blood, okay? Not so I can just do what I want to, so now I can be his servant. My life belongs to Jesus. Think about this. Paul, Paul's an apostle. He was one of the 12 guys, we'll get there in a second, that Jesus personally commissioned to take the gospel. He had great authority. But the first thing he saw about his identity was he was God's servant. His entire life is oriented around service to God. He was not his own master, but he was also an apostle. Uh, and again, historically, apostles were uh, the, it's 12, 13 or so, depending on who you count, right? Um, but these were people who were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus, who were charged by him specifically to take the gospel to the nations. Um, so Paul saw himself as someone on mission, that his life was one of being sent out. Uh, but that, that, same, that same apostolic, we might not be apostles with a capital A, but that same charge to go, uh, to be someone who's sharing, proclaiming, it's given to the whole church. You just said Matthew 28, you know, go and make disciples. Here, here's the charge for the whole church, the Great Commission, right? Go and make disciples. Whether that's across the street, across the ocean, go. So Paul sees that he's a sent-out servant. He wants Titus to know that. Going into a tough situation, people are gonna, it's gonna be, you're going to have hard days. You're going you're gonna to have days when serving is no fun. But your identity, who you are, you're not your own. Your life is oriented around service to God and the mission of God. But uh, notice in uh, verse 4, Titus is not just a servant who is sent. He's also a son. So Titus, my true child, in a common faith. Um, the idea here is Paul is Titus's spiritual father because um, that Titus was converted through Paul's ministry. Uh, but the idea here is, Titus, you're in the family, right? Christianity is a, a family thing. Titus is incorporated into the family of God. And he doesn't just have a, 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 a sort of like sub-Paul faith. He has, he has a common faith to Paul. Just being in Christ puts Titus and you and me on the same playing field as the Apostle Paul. Just consider that. So, who's Paul? Who's Titus? Who are we? Sent out servant sons of God. Children who are loved by their father and sent on his mission. So first, uh, if you would like to be a part of the church becoming beautiful, if you want to see people around you come to know Jesus, if you want to build up those around you, the first thing you have to do is take up who you are in Jesus. Some of you in here have come out of backgrounds that you're ashamed of. You feel the guilt and the weight of your sin, and you're tempted to think that that means God's not going to use me. You know, because of my past, you know, I'll get to be on the team, but I'm going to sit on the bench, right? The weight I feel, that means I can't be used. Listen, you're, you're a son of God, right? God has said about you that just because you're in Christ, you have a common faith with the apostles. The same spirit, the same power, 
the same amount of usefulness to God is yours if you're in Christ. Take that up. Let it free you from thinking that your past defines you. Others of you are tempted to say, I'm a son of God. All of my questions are answered. I have peace. Now I get to go do what I want to, right? That's a real temptation in the Western church. We take up the, the parts of our identity in Christ that are nice, right? That make us feel good about ourselves, that, that ease our emotions and our consciences. And then we say, great, now I get to go accomplish my dreams. And if that's you, I would just encourage you, take up a part of your identity is that you are a servant of God. Your life belongs to him. You're his. Not just in the fact that he's caring for you, but that your life is his. And don't just uh, take up your identity. Make decisions based upon your identity. I'm reading a great book right now. It's actually about foster care, but it's got some really good principles in it. And uh, the author talks about the difference between, um, between making decisions based on identity and decisions based on outcome. So the normal way we make decisions is we say, kind of what's in it for me. Like, who here has made a pro-cons list before? Okay, all right. All right, so uh, you make a pros list, okay? How does, this, how does this benefit me, right? And you make a cons list of, you know, what, what's going to be the cost of this, all right? And then you say, well, if the pros outweighs the cons, I'll do it. And if not, I won't, right? And uh, that's well and good, uh, except when it comes to obe- obedience to Jesus, right? Think about this. Think about, uh, think about evangelism, okay, on the pros list, all right? Maybe, maybe this person comes to know Jesus, all right? Uh, I don't see any of the pros about evangelism there, but cons, cons, okay? They might reject me. They might hate me. I might get fired. It's going to be really awkward. It's going to be socially uncomfortable, right? You make, you, make, you make a decision based on outcome. What do you do? You don't open your mouth, right? It's not worth the cost. But if you make a decision based on your identity, right, you ask the question, who am I? Who do I want to be? What do I want my life to look like? All of a sudden, it's very different, right? My life belongs to Jesus. I'm his child. I'm secure, right? So now when it comes to sharing the gospel with somebody or, you know, I don't know, doing something hard for the Lord or, or enduring in a season you don't like, right? All of a sudden, when the question is not, what do I get out of this, but who do I want to be? Who am I? The answers change. So take up who you are and make decisions this week. Do I speak? What do I do on Friday night? How am I going to spend my free time based on your identity? So first thing, Titus can just know who he is. He can endure. But he doesn't just have to know who he is. He has to know why he's here. Notice uh, how Paul sees himself. Look, Paul's a in verse 1, he's a servant, an apostle, and he says this, For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. That little phrase, for the sake of the faith, the idea there is here's why I do what I do. Here's the reason I'm an apostle. Here's why I see my life as a servant. I am here for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Just notice uh, Paul's purpose, right? The whole reason he did what he did, his whole life was wrapped up in, in partnering with God in producing faith in the lives of God's people. Now, faith, 
We talked a lot about that in Habakkuk, but faith is simply a steadfast trust. It's knowing truths about God and resting your life on those truths about God, particularly the truth about Jesus, Jesus Christ's death and resurrection for sinners and how those who believe in him have life in him. Faith in that. Trust in that. That's faith, okay? So Paul's life was about faith. Notice this faith uh, always, as uh, the end of verse 1 says, accords with godliness. That means they always go together. That faith and godliness are, in some senses, one and the same. That there's no such thing as faith without godliness. There's no such thing as a Christian who believes in Jesus but is not transformed by Jesus. That's a contradiction. Genuine trust in Jesus always transforms lives. Okay? But here's the cool thing about this. Notice, uh, notice that it's the sake of the faith of God's elect. Uh, the idea of that word is that they're chosen. Ephesians, Ephesians 1 puts it this way, that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Um, now, election is one of those things that we debate and talk a lot about in the, the church. The idea that God would, before time, that he would choose particular people to be in Christ, that he would, that he would particularly say, I'm picking you to be one of my people. That uh, in a day where, as Westerners, we love our freedom and our autonomy, that can be hard to swallow. Um, that's something I just encourage you to chew on, read the Bible humbly. But notice, um, when the Bible talks about election, when it talks about God choosing people, it's always framed as good news, particularly for people in hard situations. I'll give you an example. In Acts 18.9, uh, Paul is in Corinth, and uh, he just gets done. He's ministering in the synagogues, talking to the Jews, and it says here they oppose and reviled him. Okay, So they didn't just reject the gospel. They didn't just say no. But it's kind of like Paul leaves work, and he's like, man, today was a good day. I only had six tomatoes thrown at me, and I only got cursed out four times. You know, it was a good day, right? It was a good day at work, okay? Um, that's what's going on. People are, pe- most people aren't becoming Christians. They're rejecting and opposing him, okay? And God comes to him that night in a dream. It says here in Acts 18, 9, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God. So notice that. Before people had become Christians, God says, there are people in this city who are mine, whom I've already chosen. The idea there is, Paul, until I'm done with you and I have called my people to myself, you are invincible. Your success in ministry is guaranteed because in all the people you know, some of them are already mine. I've chosen them. And if you're faithful, you're going to be a part of me drawing them to myself. And that's the idea here. The coolest thing about attempting to bring other people to Jesus, attempting to build up other believers, is that if you're faithful and you persevere and God is sovereign, you cannot lose. Some people will reject you, but you will encounter people whom God has already chosen. The Spirit is working in their lives. And when you open your mouth for Jesus, God's going to use you to draw that person to Christ. Now, not all the time. That's not every single second. Remember, Paul was opposed. People threw tomatoes at him, right? Okay? But there's this idea that in, in the process of being a part of making the church beautiful, of seeing lost people come to know Jesus, right? You labor for the faith of God's 
elect, people he's already chosen. Like the, uh, like the famous missionary once said, until my work is complete, I am immortal. That's God's sovereignty in ministry. Okay, so what do you want to aim at for the purpose of your life? What is the Christian life primarily about in action? It is the faith of God's people. You laboring for the faith of others. You pouring your life out in whatever circumstance you're in to see faith either born in other people or grown in other people. That's the purpose of your life. You might be like, whoa, 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 wait. The book of John says that the purpose of life is to know God, is to know him, to love him. You're absolutely right. But think about the God we know and love, right? The scriptures say that the Father sent the Son on a mission to seek and save the lost, that Jesus laid his life down, he died and rose again, and now is drawing all people to himself. He's sending the Spirit to do that. Our God is missional. That's who he is. God is love, a love that reaches out to lost people and draws them. So to know God, you have to be a part of that, right? To know him, to love him, to walk with him means participating with him. So aim your life there. Aim this year towards that ambition. Have some confidence when you do that. Some, some of you in here are like, Leland, I've tried it. It just does not work, right? I've done this before. Just, I just, it just didn't work out. I, I've tried it. Um, let me give you a Bible verse you can hang your hat on. It's Galatians 5. I think it's 5, 6. I don't have the reference here in my notes. It says, let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. The idea there is maybe the reason you haven't seen success in trying this before is because you haven't persevered. Um, And if you persevere, this verse promises you at the absolute bare minimum, bare minimum, it promises you that one day, particularly probably in heaven, you'll see the fruits of your labor, right? At bare minimum, most likely, I think it promises more than that, that if you persevere, because God is sovereign, because he's drawing his people to him, right? If you persevere in walking with Jesus and sharing Jesus and trying to bring God's people into greater faith, you will have success. You will reap a harvest if you do not give up. In fact, uh, it's almost, it's, it's impossible to fail in this, right? Even if you don't see fruit, obeying Jesus is not failure, right? Anytime you try to obey, that's success. So, so Titus needs to know who he is to convict his mission and his ministry. He needs to know why he's here to bring some clarity to his mission, right? But finally, he needs to know where he is headed. Paul talks about, for the rest of this passage, his hope. So Paul is a servant. His ministry for the sake of faith of God's elect. And he does it, verse 2, in hope of eternal life. The idea of this word, eternal life, is this life with God in the age to come. This fellowship with God and his people that's perfect and unbroken. And this life that has broken in in the present time. Not fully, but in part. So recently, uh, I don't know if you guys do the news much, but we've heard a lot about 
celebrities in our culture committing suicide recently. So Kate Spade just recently uh, took her own life. Anthony Bourdain did so as well. And of course, um, depression is a, a hard and deep reality and um, it's always more complicated than you think. But we could probably say that what leads someone, okay, who has everything their culture says is good, fame, fortune, the American dream, success, right? Right, whatever, if someone is there, all the desires you could imagine fulfilled, and they take their own life, a part of the reason they've done that is hopelessness, right? They're hopeless. And uh, this hopelessness can be thinking that you will never have a chance to get your desires, or even worse, it can be getting everything you've ever wanted and realizing it's not the answer. Right? Why are celebrities so miserable? Why is People Magazine always, always talking about divorces and drama? It's because that 0.001% of our culture has gotten everything America has promised them and has come up short. One of my favorite quotes of all time. Most of y'all have heard this, but there's this interview with Tom Brady after he wins his third Super Bowl ring, okay? And he has this multi-million dollar contract and a supermodel wife and all this kind of stuff. And here's what he says, all right? Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? Most people will say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. What else is there for me? It's pretty depressing to have everything you desire by the time you're 27, right? There's some hopelessness there. And uh, again, the idea here is some people will try to lay up their treasures on the earth, and they will be frustrated and despairing because they can't. And some people will try to lay up their treasures on earth, and they will get everything they've wanted. And they'll be frustrated and in despair because it's not what they thought it'd be. But for a Christian, Christians are the only people in the world who have genuine hope. Hope is an expectation for a better future. It's an expectation that the best is yet to be. It's a conviction that no matter what the present is, the future is bright, that desires will be fulfilled, that there will be the life we're longing for in the future. And that, uh, and that hope is what fuels faithfulness in the middle of difficulty. Um, notice, uh, if you need encouragement, this hope is true. Paul says, uh, the hope of eternal life, he describes it as the life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Before creation, before time, God had already promised eternal life for you if you're a Christian. He'd already promised your forever happiness, as the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it. Your forever happiness before time began was promised by God, who never lies. And that life... In the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted. Um, that's a very complicated phrase. The idea there is that this life has broken in already on the earth through the gospel being preached. You've experienced a lick of joy in Jesus, right? You've experienced one moment of genuine delight in the Lord. You have assurance of future life. The, the future life to come has broken in on the present through the gospel. So, um, an application, I'll just say, hope 
helps you go hard. Hope helps you live and endure when life is hard. Hope helps you with hard people. Hope, hope gives you the ability to keep going when the present is dark. When you have that confrontation that blows up in your face. Right? When you try to share the gospel and someone rejects you. When your job doesn't work out. Right? When stuff's a mess in your life. When you're overwhelmed. The conviction that one day all my desires will be fulfilled. One day the future will be bright. That gives endurance. That was how Paul kept going. So in conclusion, I, I just finished this little book. It's a, it's a wonderful book. It's, it's a little strange. Uh, it's, it's not structured like you think a book would be. I, I recommend you read it, though. It's called uh, Death by Living. Life is Meant to be Spent. It's by a guy named N.D. Wilson. Uh, but basically, it's a, it's, a, it's a bunch of meditations on uh, what it means to be mortal, what it means to look at your life through the lens of your death, which, is, again, is very interesting. But his argument is, God made us to die and rise again. And if that's true, that colors the way we see our lives, that our deaths bring lots of meaning to our lives. But here's, here's, a, here's one of the conclusions he makes. This is a really beautiful passage. He says, lay your life down. Your heartbeats cannot be hoarded. Your reservoir of breaths is draining away. You have hands. Blister them while you can. You have bones. Make them strain. They can carry nothing in the grave. You have lungs, let them spill with laughter. With the average life expectancy of 78 years in the U.S., I have around 250,000 conscious hours remaining in which I can be smiling or scowling, rejoicing or moaning and complaining about my troubles. I can be giving my fingers, my back, my mind, my words, my breath to my wife and children and neighbors, or I can grasp after the vapor and vanity for myself, dragging my feet, afraid to die and therefore afraid to live. And like Adam, I will still die in the end. Living is the same thing as dying. Living well is the same thing as dying for others. That's a beautiful picture of life. It's a life that all of us in our hearts desire. But it's a life that's very hard to actually live, right? There's a lot of selfishness, a lot of deceiving that gets in the way of actually living a life that's poured out for others. And the truths we've meditated upon this morning, that we belong to Jesus, that our lives are his, that we are, we are alive for a very particular purpose, the faith of God's people, and that we are headed not just to death, but to eternal life. That will enable you to live this kind of life. Meditate on those truths, chew on them, apply them to yourselves, make decisions based on them, and you will find yourself living or dying so that other people can live. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you again for this passage, for its truths. And I pray just for our group particularly, um, that you would just make us beautiful with the fruits of the gospel, that, uh, that our lives would adorn um, the great truth about God coming in Jesus. You would just be merciful to us, that you'd be gracious in Jesus' name. Amen.